one of my uh, favorite songs from the, uh, the CCM music of the 90s. There wasn't a lot of great music in that era, but well, uh, and that isn't the version we heard in 1995, but uh, that's a pretty, I, I love that, and the, it fits with what we've been talking about here at Faith Community the last few weeks. This idea of staying in the light of truth, but just staying there, even though it's uncomfortable. Um, we're in this series that we're calling Defining Moments, and uh, this is, uh, this is part three, so I want to catch up a little bit. Before I do, just let me say our First Impressions parking team, yeah. they rock. Really? Yep. <clears throat> Something in them actually enjoys a day like today. I'm not sure what the deal is with that, but um, I think, I don't see Chris, I don't know if he's actually still here, if he had to go to the ER with... Frostbite or what, but uh, anyway, thank you guys. I appreciate you serving today. Uh, defining moments. We've said in this series so far that here's how we're defining a defining moment. The defining moment is that moment in time when a truth, either a truth that you uh, knew and had forgotten, or a truth that you knew and in the busyness of life uh, you've just kind of neglected, or maybe a truth that you did not know, it's brand new to you, suddenly that truth is brought front and center. Suddenly you know that what you're hearing is true. You know that what you're reading is true. Uh, you know that what that person is saying to you is true. Uh, and you're forced to make a decision about whether to embrace that truth and to allow it to make its way into your life and to make the changes it would make in your life or to choose in that moment to turn and walk away. Hey, Bill, my mic's really hot because we adjusted it for men's frat on Tuesday night. So just uh, if you feel like it's bouncing in the room, uh, you can feel free to adjust it because I feel like I am. That's better, yeah? feels better to me. So that's how we're defining a defining moment. You know, and you know what you need to do in that moment. You know there's an opportunity. You know there's a fork in the road. You know that you have a couple of options. Uh, you know uh, what you're thinking and what you've heard and what you've read and what you've been confronted with. And we know that it, now it's absolutely true. It's come front and center. And now you have to decide whether or not to embrace it those are defining moments. We can have defining moments in every area of our lives. You can have defining moments in your marriage. In fact, maybe your story goes something like this. You knew there were problems in your marriage. You knew there were problems in that relationship, and you just kind of ignored it, hoping it would go away and heal itself, and you just kept ignoring it, and you just tried to keep those thoughts on the peripheral of life. But, and there were warning signs, and you knew there were problems, and you just didn't want to face it. And finally, he or she came in and said, well, that's, here, that's it. I mean, here's the deal. Uh, either this changes or I'm gone. And suddenly you're faced with the truth that your marriage is, is indeed in trouble and you've got to make a decision and you can embrace the situation and make changes or you can continue to ignore the warning signs. And for some of you, that's been part of your story. Maybe you've had defining moments with uh, one of your children. Maybe you've had defining moments in your career, in your finances, in your health. Um, you know you've had those health scares and you've been through that awful process of having medical tests and then waiting for the results. Don't you love that, the waiting we're just big fans of waiting anyway. But when it's something like that, it's just like, come on already. And you finally get the results, and your doctor says, you know, there are some things here in your lifestyle that you need to change. We can address this, but there are some things, because this is the truth about where you're at in your health right now, but there are some things that need to change. And you just keep putting it off to the side and hoping that if you ignore the truth, maybe you won't suffer the consequences. Well, the defining moments we've been talking about in this series are those spiritual defining moments. Those moments in time when God, through another person 
or through scripture, or through something you're reading, or through your circumstances, just be through the voice of the Holy Spirit in your life. When God brings a truth about himself front and center, and it's a truth that maybe you've been ignoring, maybe you've brought up to believe that, but you've kind of put it off to the side for a while because of what was going on in your life or what you thought you wanted your life to be about for now. Maybe it was a brand new truth about God, and it conflicted with what you've always known and believed about God. It, it conflicted with what you'd been taught about God. And you weren't sure what to do with that. And suddenly you're faced with this brand new truth and suddenly you have to make a decision. Do I embrace God as he truly is or do I continue to live my life and pretend that God is the God that I've invented in my mind, the God that I've been told that he was? When in fact, here's the truth about God and it's unsettling and it's, it's convicting and it's going to cause me to rethink my life or to rethink my lifestyle or rethink how I approach God What do you do in those moments when you're confronted with that kind of truth? So we said, this is what we said in parts one and two. That this is what Jesus came to do. Jesus began his ministry here on earth going around telling people what God was like. Because people in that day had a lot of uh, misconceptions about God. They had been raised to believe all kinds of crazy things that we look at and we just shake our heads. Because they've been raised to believe things like God uh, favored uh, rich people. They've been taught to believe that. They've been taught to believe that if someone was born with an illness, that God was punishing them or their parents. They believed all sorts of strange things about God and how to earn their way into God's favor. And Jesus shows up and he says, I want you to know the Father, and I want you to know how to have a relationship with your Heavenly Father. And when you pray, I want you to pray to God as he really is, not as you imagine him to be, not as you've been told that he is, and not that you've created him to be. I've come, he says, to flesh out the Father in such a way that to know me is to know the Father. And so throughout his ministry, Jesus was having conversations with people where he was revealing truth about the Father, uncomfortable, strange, brand new truth, truth that caused them to make a decision about whether they would go forward with what they just heard that God uh, was like or whether they would retreat into the past, retreat to what they had always been comfortable with. At one point in his ministry, this is where we started a few weeks ago, Jesus put it this way, he said, if you'll abide in my word, that is, if you'll hear the truth, when you see the truth, when you're confronted with the truth, and there's something in you that says, that's true. I don't like it. It's uncomfortable. I've never heard it that way before. I tried not to think about that, but I know it's true. He said, if you'll abide there, if you'll just stay there, if you'll just pause, if you'll just stand in that scathing searchlight of truth, And even though your eyes are squinting shut because it's so uncomfortable, if you'll just stay there, eventually your eyes will adjust to the light. And in that moment, you'll know the truth. And Jesus said, the truth will make you free. See, the tendency for you and me is when we discover something new about God, when we realize we've been wrong about what God is really like, when we realize that he hasn't lifted the ban on certain sins that we kind of enjoy, when we realize that he is who he claims to be, there's something in you and there's something in me that makes us want to retreat to what we're comfortable with. And instead of standing in the light and squinting and waiting for our eyes to adjust, I just want to run back into the darkness because my eyes have adjusted to the darkness. My eyes have adjusted to the lifestyle I've adopted. My eyes have adjusted to my view of God, as wrong as it might be. I'm comfortable with it. Because here's a God I can contain. Here's a God I can define. Here's a God I can control. Here's a God who always does what I want my God to do when I want my God to do it. 
And so over and over, when Jesus had conversations with men and women, in those conversations, he just let the light of his truth shine. And many of those men and women stood there until their eyes adjusted, and they embraced the truth, and they were changed forever. And for many of them, we know their names today. Some, like in the story today, instead of embracing the truth, turned and ran back to the darkness of what they'd always believed. So today, this conversation, this conversation between Jesus and this young guy, probably a single guy, definitely wealthy, what he discovered in his encounter with Jesus was something he did not plan on confronting. It's something he didn't know about at all until he met Jesus. And he discovered that his, his stuff, his wealth, his possessions owned him. That he was not the master of his wealth, that in fact his wealth was his master. And in that moment, when truth began to sink in, instead of embracing that difficult truth and doing something about it, he did what most people do in this defining moment of their lives. He turned and he ran back to what was comfortable. And in doing so, he missed out on an opportunity of a lifetime. So if you have your Bible or your Bible app today, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Mark, the second book in the New Testament, the book of Mark, chapter 10. Mark, chapter 10. This is a story of what's uh, commonly referred to as the story of the rich young ruler. It's not what he's called in the Bible. He doesn't have a title. Um, It's just what the English translators have titled this section of the scripture. And it's probably a good title, the rich young ruler, because we don't know his name. Here's a guy who was not following Jesus, but he'd heard about Jesus. He'd heard about his teachings. Here's a guy who had a burning question that no one could answer for him. Perhaps this is a question that he asked everywhere he went. I'm guessing he probably, this isn't the first time he'd asked the question of a teacher. He'd probably gone to lots of teachers and asked the question and perhaps didn't like the answers he'd gotten or they weren't satisfying enough. I'm not sure. But nobody could give him a satisfactory answer. So he's decided, like Nicodemus did back in John 3, that Jesus was a man who'd come from God. So perhaps he could answer this question for him. So this is Mark chapter 10. I'm going to read a few verses, starting with verse 17. Mark 10, 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. This is kind of unusual. Good teacher, he asked, what must I, what's the next word? Do. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Here's a guy who wanted to know that when he died, everything was going to be okay. And so far, he didn't feel like it was going to be okay. He didn't have that kind of peace. He'd done everything he knew to do to please God, to make sure he was in a place, that there was a place reserved for him on the other side of this life, whatever that looked like. And at night, when he laid in bed, there was no peace. There was no assurance. At the end of the day, he wasn't confident that he'd done everything he could do to make sure there was a place reserved for him in heaven. So he assumes Jesus is a good man, a good teacher who'd come from God. And maybe he thinks, maybe he can give me the last thing I need to do in order to ensure a place for me in heaven. <clears throat> and Jesus... <coughs> How many of you have been struggling with a little bit of any kind of sickness this winter? Like, like a flu or a cold or bronchitis or pneumonia or some kind of plague or something? Yeah, well, I'm just on the other, hopefully on the other end of a cold. It's a nagging little cough and the forced air is really bothering me today. So I apologize to those of you in the front row. Um, Jesus responds to his question in a way uh, that takes him by surprise, as Jesus often did. Because he rarely answered the question that was asked. He always answered the unasked question, so he goes to the heart of the matter. 
And he looks at the young man in verse 18, and he says, Why do you call me good? This is really interesting. <clears throat> really interesting encounter. There's a real distinction here. We need to make, make this clear. Because the little Greek word that this man used to describe Jesus didn't mean that he thought Jesus was a good teacher. Because, like, I get that all the time. You're such a good teacher. But only my wife was, was doubting that. But uh, there's a distinction between a good teacher and being a teacher who is good. And that's what this means, that Jesus, we know you're a teacher who is good. It doesn't mean you're good at teaching. It means you're a good man. And I think and he was also a good teacher, but that's not what he was referring to. Um, he taught better than anybody else, I think, but there was something inherently good about Jesus, and, and this guy recognized that. So Jesus catch, catches him off guard, <clears throat> and he says, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. And I think there's a long pause here. It's like, you call me good? Only God's good. So are, are you saying, are you implying that you think, hmm, are you saying you think there's some kind of connection? Since only God is good and I am good, that somehow... Are you saying somehow I'm synonymous with God? Are you saying something beyond the idea that you think I'm a good guy? I don't think the young guy gets it. Because he's like already confused. He's like, I knew you would do this. I heard this is what you do. Somehow you ask a question. It has nothing to do with the question I just asked you. And you answer questions with questions that I don't... Where this is come. What am I supposed to say to this, Jesus? So Jesus goes on. It says, no one is good except God alone, verse 19. <clears throat> it says, you know the commandments. See, he knows what this guy wants. This guy wants a system. He's like us. He wants to know, how do I do the right things and manipulate things in such a way that I get what I want from God? Right now, in this conversation, I want eternal life. I don't feel like I have it. I don't have any assurance. There's no peace when I go to bed at night. So give me something to do, Jesus. I want the rest of the formula. I got the commandments and the law, and that's all good. That doesn't seem to be working for me because I've worked this system. I want to control my life. I want to be able to get from God what I want. Me, me, me. How do I get eternal life? So Jesus just plays along with him, and he says, well, you know the commandments. I mean, don't you know the commandments? You just do all those commandments. Isn't that good enough? And he starts to list some of the commandments, you know, the big ones. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And I think Jesus is going to, he's going to go right down the, the whole list, I think, of the commandments. And this kid's getting really frustrated now because he knows all this stuff. And he interrupts Jesus. He's like, no, 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 no. No, he says, verse 20. He says, teacher, all these I've kept since I was a boy. It's like, duh, Jesus. In other words, don't list the Ten Commandments. I've got those memorized. I've already done the Ten Commandments. I've been doing that since I was a kid. In other words, Jesus, I'm good too. I'm a good guy. I'm real good, but I don't, I don't feel that I know what it takes to have eternal life. I'm working this system, so tell me, is there something else? Is there something in this system that I'm missing? I love this next, this next part, verse 21. <clears throat> Jesus looked at him. We've got to slow down here because this is huge. Jesus looked at him and loved him. How many t- you ever missed that in there before in this story? Jesus looked at him and loved him right in the middle of this conversation. Right at the point where this guy had no idea where Jesus was going, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. You know what it means? That instead of going into the right answer, there was something that rose up in Jesus where he looked at this sincere but spiritually blind guy, this guy that was asking the wrong questions, that was trying to work the system, 
know, how to try to get God in on his deal, how he could do one more thing on his checklist to get in. And Jesus looked at him and his heart just goes out to him. And he's not angry and he doesn't chastise him. He doesn't make him feel guilty and he doesn't judge him because he knows he's about to dump some heavy truth on him. He's about to open up the searchlight full blast on him and drill right down into this guy's heart. He's about to expose this guy's heart to himself and to everybody who's standing around listening to this conversation. But his heart goes out to this young man and he decides to shine the light in such a way that maybe he'll send him on his way searching. Maybe someday he'll come to the right conclusion about who Jesus really is and what his heavenly father really is like. And his heart just goes out to this guy. And it gives him the opportunity of a lifetime. <clears throat> I'm thinking the disciples uh, must, have been, must have kind of perked up and looked at each other when they heard him say these words. Because listen to what he says, because they were words that were, reminded them of what Jesus had said to them. Verse 21, one thing you lack. <clears throat> I think at this point the guy's got his pen out and his notepad and he's ready. He's ready to write this down. It's like he's about to get the 11th commandment. He's ready. I lack one thing and Jesus is about to give it to me. And you give it, you're going to give me the one thing and I'm going to go do it. In fact, I'm going to do it better than anybody else has ever done it. And uh, I'm, going to be, I'm a good guy, but I'm going, to be, I'm going to get the 11th thing and I'm going to be in and it's going to be sweet and I'm going to be able to sleep tonight. And I think it's kind of interesting that Jesus doesn't give him one thing. One thing you lack, and then he gives him three things. Verse 21, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have. I don't think he bothered to write that down. I think he's like, do what? What? I think he went, what? No, did you change the subject, Jesus? I hear you do that. First thing you do is go and sell everything you own. Secondly, I want you to give the proceeds to the poor. Still not writing. Then you'll have treasure in heaven. And third, I want you to come and follow me. He's like, no, 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 no. I, think, I don't think you understood what I was saying, Jesus. What I want to know is how to have eternal life. I just want, I just want you to give me that, that missing piece in here, that one more law to keep. I just want you to give me something else to do. Is it church on Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock? I'll be there for an hour and a half, like three out of four Sundays. I'll do that if that's what you need me to do. I'm just, I just want to, I need to know the system. I can't work it if I don't know it. So if you'll just give me the thing. I'm trying to get God in on my deal here. So if you, just, if you want me to sell everything I have, uh, then, then you want me to give everything to the poor, and then you want me to come follow you, I don't see the connection. And Jesus' disciples are listening to this whole thing now, and they're thinking, yeah, this sounds familiar. This is sounding really familiar. Because we read it today, and we think, that's not even the right answer. If somebody comes to us and says, how do I have eternal life? We don't give them these three things. I wouldn't say, well, sell everything you have, first of all, and give it to the poor, and then come have lunch with me. That's not the answer to this question today. I wouldn't even say, sell everything you have and follow Jesus. That's not even the right answer. But yeah, it is the right answer. Because here's what Jesus knew about him. Just like he knows about us. Just like he knows about you and me. Here's where Jesus goes with this, because this is his defining moment, this young, rich young ruler. <clears throat> this guy wanted to find out. He wanted to work the system. He wanted to sit in the seat of control, don't we? He wanted to figure out how to get God in and what he wanted, don't we do that? And so to ensure that somehow he would have eternal life, which to him meant that you go somewhere after you die. He had a fairly limited view of what eternal life was, and sometimes we do too. But Jesus was after something else. In fact, Jesus came to, he came to earth to expose to everybody what God was like. To show the world the heart of God. 
And part of this new truth that the world didn't know and still misses to this day is that God, more than anything else in this world, wants our love. He wants our loyalty. He wants us to follow Him. And because He sent His Son into this world not to establish a new code of conduct, not to bring us an 11th commandment, not a checklist of things to do, not a set to do on every Sunday from 10 to 11.30 uh, for now into eternity. He came because eternal life isn't about destiny. Eternal life isn't simply about heaven. Eternal life isn't just living somewhere forever and singing some songs in a cloud. There's far more to it than that. And Jesus looks at this guy and he says, you know, I'm going to give you the answer. And I'm going to give you the opportunity of a lifetime because I am, pers- I am personally the Son of God. I am personally inviting you as I invited Matthew and as I invited John and as I invited Peter. I'm inviting you to liquidate everything and follow me. And in following me, you're going to discover that eternal life isn't a destination. It's not just heaven someday. Eternal life is about a relationship. And Jesus said, I'm inviting you into a relationship with me. And here's what I know about you, young man. Your primary loyalty is to you. And if you're going to connect with me at this level, then I want you to connect with me. Then you've got to deal with your primary loyalty. You've got to liquidate all your stuff, all your wealth, all your obligations in order to connect with me. And I'm inviting you into this kind of unique relationship. Later on, Jesus makes this very clear. In the book of John, in John 17, he defines eternal life. And I think we try to define it. We've got our own idea of what that looks like. And I think we ought to really just go to Jesus, who I think gets to speak authoritatively on what eternal life is, okay? Maybe you've never read this verse, but it's a powerful verse. Jesus says this, because it's like, you want to know what eternal life is? It's not heaven someday. That's great. That's a great part of the package. Don't get me wrong. But that's not all. It's not like, you know, life stops and then we get eternal life. It's not heaven someday. It's not just about living forever. Eternal life isn't even about a place. Eternal life is about a person. Here's what Jesus said, John 17, 3. He says, this, he says, now this is eternal life. That they, that's you and me, may, what's the next word? No, not show up. Not have perfect attendance. Not do some stuff. Not stay away from some stuff. That they may know that is, connect, to get into relationship with, that they may know you, the only true God. Oh, and there's another person involved in this relationship, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Eternal life is all about a relationship. Jesus looks at this young guy. He says, okay, I'm going to take you there. You want to know about eternal life? You ask the question. So we're going to go there. I want you to begin a relationship with me. I want you to become a part of my inner circle. And I want you to follow me. What an invitation. You know, Matthew had to leave the tax collecting business. Peter and John, they had to leave the family fishing business. You need to leave your wealth because what I want to do is to disconnect people from the thing that they are primarily loyal to. And I want to connect you to me. Because when I'm gone, the message I want you to leave in this world is, is, is that God isn't about a routine. God is about a relationship, a relationship that's characterized by love and intimacy. So I'm going to give you the opportunity of a lifetime to have a personal relationship with your Savior. So come, follow me. And in that moment, this young man discovered something about himself. You know what he discovered? He discovered that his primary ambition was not to learn how to have eternal life. His primary ambition in life was to learn how to stay in the seat of control. 
and to use God to get what he wanted. There was something he wanted more than eternal life. There was something he wanted more than a relationship. And in that moment, he discovered that his wealth owned him. It owned him to the degree, imagine this, that he looks at Jesus, the Son of God, and says, "Mm, no thank you. Look at, the, look at the Bible says. Here's how the story ends, verse 22. <clears throat> at this, the man's face fell. He went away because he had great wealth. It's like, Jesus, I have too much stuff to follow you. I got important stuff here. I got stuff with a lot of value. Uh, God of the universe who created everything. You know, I've got, I, I got too much stuff. I can't follow you. I'm busy. I can't, follow, I can't follow you right now. I'm too important to too many people. I can't follow you. I got a big job. I got big responsibilities. I got a big title. I got stuff to manage. You don't really expect me to walk away from that, do you? <clears throat> and in that moment, he discovered something about himself that his stuff owned him. And here's why this is such an important passage of Scripture, why it's such an important encounter, why it's such an important principle for all of us. Some of you are already uncomfortable, right? Because some of you are uncomfortable because you aren't sure what the application is yet. You know, if you really love Jesus, or if you really love him, then liquidate. Give it all away. And you're already like, oh, what's he going to ask us to do today? Is this the day we have to sign it all over? Here's the point. Just relax. The tension that you feel is the tension we need to feel. This is why I think this conversation is included in the scripture for us. You ready for this? This is important. Listen. Nothing competes for your loyalty and your love for Christ than your pursuit and management of a lifestyle. Nothing competes more for your heart. Nothing tugs against loyalty to Christ. Nothing works against you following Jesus more. Nothing works against surrendering everything you have, everything you are, fully abandoned. God, I'm totally yours. Nothing wars against that. More than your pursuit and management of wealth and your pursuit of stuff and your management of a lifestyle. I know, I just got really uncomfortable here. I'm sorry, but uh, Jesus knew this. Your Heavenly Father knows this. That's why every once in a while we have a defining moment financially. We think it's a reversal. Every once in a while as you follow Christ, God is going to come to you and say, I want you to give an extraordinary amount of of something to this, of money or resource or whatever to this, or an extraordinary number of these dollars to my kingdom. And in that moment, you're going to discover something about you. You're going to discover whose you really are. And you come to church and you sing the songs and you had your quiet times this week and you're a nice person and you're a good Christian. But I tell you what, nothing will take you down the road to the core of whose you really are. Like when your Heavenly Father says, for my sake, I want you to dispense of some of this. Get your checkbook out and dispense of some of this. In that moment, in that tension, in that, I'm sure that wasn't God speaking. That must have been my guilty conscience. It's like one of those really sappy, awkward commercials on TV. That couldn't have been God speaking. In that, oh no, what's going to happen now if I write this check? In that moment, there's a defining moment and you discover something about yourself. Here's the good news. Just, God doesn't need your money. Okay? 
This isn't about amount of money. It's not about that. In fact, the interesting thing is in this passage <clears throat> is that Jesus says, I want you to get rid of everything. <clears throat> and he doesn't say, give it to me. He doesn't say, sell everything and give it to me and my disciples because we need it. Because, you know, we're doing ministry. It's important stuff. And we need to fund that. So you sell everything you have and fund us for a while. No, he doesn't say that. So I want you to sell everything and just give it to the poor. Then come follow me. Because I don't want your money. I don't want your stuff. I want your heart. That's what I want. That's what I'm after. I want you to fall in love with me. And here's what God knows, and you and I know, and this is why I chose this topic on Valentine's Day, because it's, it's all about what we love, and see the tie in there? It's pretty good, right? I thought we'll put some pink hearts on, this day on the screen, but yeah, that just came to me, actually. But um, here's, what, here's the thing. Here's what's true, and some of you are going to experience this today, and some of you are like, oh, that's nice for you, that in love people give generously to the people they love, typically, right? Just go along with me on this one, Okay. When you fall in love with someone, it's amazing what you're willing to do with your money. Those of you who are married, guys, let's, just, let's, just a, let's, let's not talk about the present, okay? Let's talk about when you were dating, okay? Because when you were dating, we'd rather talk about that, right, on Valentine's Day? It was crazy what you spent your money on, right? I mean, it didn't matter if you had a budget. It didn't matter whatever, whatever it took to please her. You just, it just happened. You just coughed it up happily. It was a great investment. We do this with our kids all the time, don't we? Think about the stupid stuff you spent your money on to make your kids happy. You look at it and you're like, twenty nine ninety five. They'll play with it for eight minutes. Okay, here you can have four of them. You know, and I mean, forget stewardship. Forget Dave Ramsey and financial peace and debt management and all that. It's yours. There's how many more of these do you want? If it makes you happy, you know. We just do foolish things for the people that we love. Do you know what else in love people do? Not only do they give extravagantly, but they prioritize according to who they love. When you love someone, they become the priority in your giving of your resources and your time and your attention. This is why this is such a defining moment. This is why every once in a while, God's going to knock on your financial door and you'll discover who you really are. Because if you're in love with Jesus, if you're following after the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, if you really love the Lord your God, then when he prompts you, when he prompts you, hey, I want you to fund this. I want you to bump up your giving here. I want you to give more consistently there. I want you to scale back the vacation plans and the dream house plans and the car plans and the new wardrobe plans. And I want you to give to this for the sake of my kingdom. And when you receive those kinds of promptings, you don't just push it off to the side, but you respond because you're in love with your Savior. But if in those moments you find yourself wrestling, I don't know, I mean, maybe, maybe, okay, I heard this amount, that's what I felt prompted to, but I don't think I can do that, so how about this much? I really wanted, and, and I was really hoping this month to be able to do this with the money, but I, I don't know. It's a defining moment. And in that moment, you might come to the realization that perhaps, perhaps your stuff owns you. Instead of you owning it or managing it, perhaps your lifestyle owns you. Yes, God, you're important. I mean, you know, you see how many times I go to church and the things I do there. I'm a, I'm a really churchy person, and you know that, God. So, and I got the sticker on the car stuff, so and all my radio station's presets are on the Christian radio. So you know what kind of person I am, God. I'm a good one. But right now, you're not the priority on this conversation uh, because I, and we never say this publicly. We never say these words out loud. 
But the truth is, our money owns us. Our lifestyle owns us. Our image owns us. Hitting someone else's expectations of us owns us. It's like we're saying to God, I'd, you're great and all that, and I'll squeeze you in, but I'd rather use you instead of being owned by you and using my money. And you don't know that about yourself until he says, okay, let's do something highly unusual financially. We're already doing something highly unusual. Like you go to church like every Sunday, you're a freak, okay? So that's, that you're weird enough already. Let's do something really unusual in your finances now. Let's see what that looks like. And the issue when God speaks to you is not the amount of money. The issue is not what, it's not even a percentage. It's not how regular. It's not that the issue is, are you owned by your money and the comfort it provides you? Am, am I your Lord, Jesus would say, or is your checking account your Lord, or your retirement account your Lord, or your vacation plans, or that new car that you have to have? I'm telling you, if you're a believer, these moments are going to come, and the issue isn't the amount of money. The issue isn't that God needs your money. The issue is that, God knows that nothing, compa- nothing competes for the lordship of your life like your stuff. Nothing keeps... Nothing competes for the control of your life like your stuff, like the management of a lifestyle. And every single time God speaks to you about this, the question is, does this own you or do you manage it for your heavenly Father's sake? Watch out for this. As your income goes up, and you're like, that'd be nice. Your financial picture improves. As your net worth goes up, I guarantee God's going to check in every once in a while. Because it was easy to give $1 out of 10. That's pretty easy to do. It's easy kind of to give $10 out of 100. Maybe you've gotten to a point where you can give 100 out of 1,000. But if you're giving 1,000 out of 10,000, Every time you reach a new level of success financially, it's easier and easier for that to become a source of security. And without us ever knowing it, we are owned by our possessions, we are owned by our lifestyle, we are owned by an image that we want to portray to others. And then simply, we start working the system with God. And from time to time, for your sake and for my sake, our Heavenly Father comes along and He's going to require above and beyond. And He's going to require something out of the ordinary. He's going to ask what might even seem like an unreasonable request of us. And in that moment, we're, we're going to discover something instantaneously. We're going to discover whose we are and if we love him or if we're just using him. <clears throat> Here's some good news. When Jesus looked at this rich young ruler, he knew what was in his heart and he knew what he was going to do and he knew that he had no idea that he was owned by his stuff and he knew that he was going to make the wrong decision. And Jesus smiled and loved him. And when he loved him, he turned on the searchlight. And the guy discovered in the twinkling of an eye where he stood and he walked away because he had too much wealth. And he said no to God because of his stuff. Isn't it true that you've said no to God because of your stuff? I have. I struggle with this all the time. And you know that even when you've done that, the kingdom of God went right on and you lost because you missed out on an opportunity to be a part of something that God was doing. You missed out on the opportunity to be a follower and to be a manager of resources and a steward rather than someone who was owned by something.
that could be gone in an instant. <clears throat> I don't know what happened to the rich young ruler. <clears throat> I'll take a guess. I would imagine in the days and weeks that followed that conversation, he probably continued to hear about the reputation of Jesus. I imagine in the months that followed, he heard about his crucifixion. He heard about his resurrection. He might have even been in Jerusalem and all that, everything broke loose there and thousands of people put their faith in the resurrected Messiah as their Savior and the word began to spread throughout the known world. And as this young man got older and older, maybe, maybe he looked back on that day when he had an opportunity to be in the middle of the action. It would have been Peter, James, and John and the rich young ruler or maybe we would, we would actually know his name and he'd be a guy that we name our kids after. He could have been in the center of the action. But he allowed wealth that's here today and gone tomorrow. He allowed his wealth to rob him of that opportunity because it owned him. Now let me tell you something about you and me. <clears throat> when we get to the end of our lives, none of us are going to be, none of us are going to lie in our deathbeds and wish that we'd spent more. None of us are going to say, if only I'd consumed more. If only I had borrowed more. If only I had accumulated more. If only I had... No, our, our regrets are going to have nothing to do with that kind of stuff. But depending on what you do between now and that day with your relationship with Jesus Christ, that's going to determine whether or not you can look back at your Heavenly Father and say, I accumulated wealth and I invested it in your kingdom. And I invested it in those things that are eternal. And I leveraged it for the good of your kingdom and the glory of your name on earth because I loved you. Well, you may have to say, Father, the truth is I love my stuff and I used it for me. And I used you. <clears throat> the point today is simple. This passage can be a defining moment for us. Because now you know who you are. So here's two questions. In light of this truth, whose are you? And what will you do about it? Don't be confused that it's about amount of money. Okay, because you're thinking, well, I don't have any money, so this is not an issue for me. No, nope, that's not. It's mm, not what we're talking about. It's irrelevant. The question is, whose are you and what will you do about it? Will you embrace this uncomfortable truth and will you stand there in light? Will you allow it to get all over you? Will you stay there until your eyes adjust? Maybe you'll just have to say, God, I see it now. I see it like you see it now. I, I, I really am controlled by my stuff. I'm glad I stayed here long enough to see that. I didn't know how that could be because I don't even have that kind of money. I don't know. Uh, I don't have the kind of money some people have, even in this room. I don't have their money, and I don't have the kind of material possessions and the, you know, the houses and cars and all that that some people have. I don't have the kind of income that some people have. I don't have the kind of lifestyle that some people have. It's a pretty modest life I live, but I see it now. It's not about the amount. I see that I've let it, what I do, have control of me. I've grown comfortable with my lifestyle. I've grown accustomed to wanting this and working towards that and getting it. I've grown accustomed to going week after week, even months, without ever once giving anything to anybody. I see it now that I'm controlled by my pursuit of wealth and stuff and my pursuit of looking the part and maintaining my image in this lifestyle. And if I'm completely honest, God, I would say, yes, I've let this control me. and it, I don't own anything. It owns me. So if that's you, will you embrace this uncomfortable truth? Will you stay in the light? Will you let your eyes adjust? When you want to run away back to what's comfortable and familiar 
And, you know, besides, I already tithe when I can. We stand in front of this convicting, penetrating truth until your eyes begin to adjust. You begin to manage your wealth, to manage what you have for his kingdom's sake. Not simply for your security's sake or for your image's sake, but for the glory of God's name on earth. Maybe some of you are just discovering today in these last few minutes for the first time who you really are because you've just never really thought about this before. You come to church and you sing the songs and you love the people and, you know, but today in light of this truth, you're seeing for the first time what it is that you really love. The good news is, as we saw in this conversation that Jesus had, that are in the middle of it, your Savior loves you. Even when he knew the heart of the rich young ruler, he knew in advance that this young, man, this young man's decision, he knew what it would be. The scripture says he looked at him and he loved him. And he extends his love to you and to me. He loves us enough to allow us to see what we've never been able to see. Maybe we didn't want to see it. Maybe it's uncomfortable. But now we have the option to make changes. So, whose are you? And what will you do about it? This is one of those messages where the application is pretty simple. No, it's pretty obvious. Not that simple. God knows us as we really are. He knows what we have. He knows what we have accumulated. He knows the obligations we have. He knows the debt that we carry. He knows the standards that we've established for ourselves. Um, He knows our patterns. He knows that we love this life. We love this culture. We love this lifestyle. And every Sunday we get together and we say that we love him. But our lifestyle doesn't always reflect that. And I realize that this kind of message is uncomfortable. You think it's uncomfortable sitting there? You want to try it from right here. It's really uncomfortable to listen to, and it's really uncomfortable to prepare and to do that kind of introspection and to deliver it, because now we know whose we are. And if you're unsure what to do with the truth that's been revealed to you today, let me encourage you to talk with God about that. Spend some time alone with your Heavenly Father. When you're done talking to Him, listen. Just listen. Just listen to his voice in your life. God will speak to you. Be sensitive to his promptings. Where he leads you, give extravagantly. Give extravagantly, not out of guilt, not to impress. Not, and I'm not even saying it. Not, don't, don't have to write it to Faith Community Fellowship. Give it to, give, just give it. Not to impress anybody. Not for the tax write-off. Not simply because there's a need. Just give extravagantly out of your love for him. Just try that. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, this morning we just ask for courage not to wait until we feel generous because we know that's going to be our tendency. We won't give a thing away, but we'll keep praying for you to make us generous people. So we're done with that. Pray that we would give generously until they change our hearts. God, I'm convinced it's in the giving that you change us. May it be true of us. May this characterize us as a church. That we are men and women who manage what we have. Not men and women who are owned by what we have. May we be generous and may it be a reflection of our love for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Just listen to this song. Thank you.
Touch the sky, woman, they hit the ground.